for the uh, march? A couple of you, maybe? Nobody? You did? All right, a couple of you now. They're starting to go up. How'd it go? That's awesome. Hey, listen, we're um, we're we're actually uh, coming into a context here where where in some ways this passage is going to be very relevant to what's happening in our city, as well as just what's happening in our life. And um, it's also relevant because uh, today we we installed an assistant pastor in our previous service, but it's your assistant pastor as well. And so it was also an installation sermon. But but I want to start off with you thinking about this. What, what is your passion? I know that sounds cliche, but I, I want us to think about it a little bit. What is your passion, your greatest passion? What is it that really becomes your first and highest priority in life? In a word, I'm asking you, what is messianic to you? You know, that which inspires your hopes and inspirations, that which makes you become most fervent or passionate in the conversation. It's what you think about the most. It's what you want to be a part of the most. Well, hopefully today you're thinking Atlanta Falcons. Oh, well. I didn't think they'd go over too well up here. I did grow up with them. But seriously, this fervent passion... Oftentimes, it's my family. It's my family. My marriage. My desire to have relationships, maybe. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's vocation. My passion is my work. Maybe it's travel. You know, particularly because of the season we are just coming out of, it's interesting that those of us who live in America, well, we've just endured yet another season of messianic fervor. The 2016 campaign of American politics, no exception, it seems like it was everywhere and all the time, especially now with the 24-7 news cycle and, of course, along partisan lines. And is it any wonder that we are now greeted in 2017 with equal post-election Elation or despair at messianic levels? Again, mostly along partisan lines, respectively. So think about it for a minute. What, what are the dreams and the hopes that inspire such passions? But more importantly, what assumptions about what and how our dreams and hopes can become a reality are embedded within those passions? Yes, I'm going to confess that I envy such political messianism as we see around us. I envy it, and increasingly I see the greater church envying it as well. Uh, A church that wants to be relevant. And so I can see how the church, as well as myself, that we are tempted, and we have two different options with this envy. Some will envy it as to co-opt our Christianity into it, such as to validate our religion to an increasingly secular or, and they're different, or a religiously privatized kind of society. And either one of those, secular, where we just don't see spirituality or, or religion is really relevant anymore, we have a kind of naked public square, as it used to be called, or increasingly in the kind of spirituality that's deeply personal, non-communal, non-organizational. And and so in both of those contexts, we're looking for a way to feel relevant now. We're looking for an experience that makes us feel as Christians like we are participating in a passion. And so often what you see happening and what's the temptation is to co-opt the dreams and make them religious. Others, though, as you'll see, like Paul, will envy such messianic passion, in fact, imbibe it, but as to challenge or even to reconsider whether our political or other messianisms are really, truly messianic. For those given an interest in this latter envy, if you will, well, I think you have the passage. You see, in this book especially, we've seen already how Paul will say things like this that are incredibly messianic in its fervor. He'll say things like, whatever gain I had. Now think about that. 
whatever confidences, whatever passions I used to have, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. For His sake, I have suffered everything. Remember, things that used to be important, used to be His passions. And count them as rubbish even in order that I may gain Christ. In order that by any means possible. Any means Paul? Are you kidding me? Everything is rubbish in comparison? Sounds kind of hyper, doesn't it? Kind of messianic? That's what he says. That I may, in order that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, we need to understand what's happening here. But was it justified? What is the true prize of messianic fear, do you think? What are our assumptions about how the prize can be won? We have some questions here. It's a tall order, but, but something particularly relevant to those of us, I think, sitting here today in the world that we live in. And I want you especially to notice something about the way this passage was written. There's a lot of I statements. Paul is thinking of himself and his own apostolic calling and ministry. Thus, the relevance for Craig, myself, and anyone who would, who would consider going into the office of pastor. But notice also that at the end of the passage, it's not just for Paul and those who are called to the ministry, because it's also stated, join in imitating me in this passion, as we'll see. And keep your eyes on the ball, so to speak. Keep your eyes focused on those who walk according to the example that you have seen in us. And that's when he offers this scathing assessment who, at those who direct their messianic fervor to something else. He'll say in verse 18, for, whom, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross. And remember, these are people who preach Christ earlier we saw, if you were here two weeks ago. These are people who are Christians, supposedly. But he calls them enemies of the gospel. Their end will be destruction for you. Their God is their belly or their appetites for what? Prestige, power, privilege. And their glory is their shame with minds, and this is the key, because their minds are set on earthly so clearly Paul is creating a contrast here. You see a messianic fervor in Paul, but he's setting that messianism in contrast to the messianism that we see all around us in the world. And so let's, pull, let's stop and pray for a minute as we think about that in our own lives. Would you join me? So God, we confess that we need your help here. We, we, we want to be a people of passion, however that's expressed. But Lord, we confess that, that, that we often don't scrutinize it the way we should. So help us, Lord. Help us to know our passions and help us to scrutinize them with your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, you get the sense in this book, uh, if you've been following along now, we're well into it, that there is something of a personal journey that's being exposed here. This is a deeply existential book. I mean, there is a lot of Paul coming out here and his own self is being rendered sort of naked here. And you, and you stop and think about, you know, I wonder how much of this letter isn't the product of Paul's own struggles to press on in this endeavor that he's been called to. As is so often the case, in fact, there's even a theological word for it. It's called enactment prophecy. We, we see it all through the Old Testament. We even see it in the New Testament. And I can tell you, I've experienced it myself, that, that oftentimes God will set his message up with acts of providences in our lives both for those who preach it and those who will hear it. I mean, you've probably said it, gosh, you know, people come to me all the time after a sermon, man, it's as if God just prepared me for this sermon. And then they'll tell me things that have happened that week. Well, in the same manner, I think Paul here was being prepared for this sermon, the one he gives in Philippians. Because you think about it, I mean, God calls Paul here. To go and preach the gospel, to plant churches, this guy's high energy as it gets, and now he's sitting in a prison. 
Paul, no doubt, had time to reflect on all the things he had left behind when he was called into the ministries. He had time to reflect on on all sorts of things. You know, someone who was who was of a great family origin. He was he had great dreams and passions for his family lineage, as he'll confess in his book. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He had great passions as a, as a, as a citizen of Rome and political ambitions that are associated with that. And he had great passions for his education. He had gone to the elite of the elite colleges, if you will, and studying under Gamaliel. And so he's sitting in prison. You can just imagine. And what does he do? He's thinking about his life. Is it worth it? I mean, have I done all this in vain? He looks around. The world doesn't seem to be changing that much. It feels like it's like going to hell in a handbasket, actually. I mean, was it worth it? These things that he left behind, as I said, he summarizes them in chapter, in the same chapter, verses 2 through 6. And what's interesting is there he describes them as things that were before given him, that had given him great confidence in the flesh. Again, think about this in your own life. Where is your passion? Where do you seek to achieve in your life the most? Things pertaining to the social prestige of his family origin, things pertaining to the political power of a Roman citizenship, American citizenship, things pertaining to being religiously esteemed by his elite education, no, sitting in prison, and by the look of things all around him in the world, it seems like he could have left all of that behind in vain. You can almost hear it through the letter. Listen to the way you can, you can hear it often by this sort of strength of, of, of declaration that he makes throughout this book. For instance, in chapter 1, he says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Now, that's significant. The day of Christ. What's he talking about? We just sang about that in that song. The day of Christ. Somehow, his passions have now moved away from this world to this day of Christ. That's his confidence, he says. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says it again. Insofar as they will hold fast to the word of life. Again, the people he's the churches he's planted, the people he's ministered to. He's saying, you can almost hear him, well, is it worth it? Well, insofar as they will hold fast to the word of life that I've taught them, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So already we've heard this sort of existential rumination going on. That is, all the things, his previous confidences of the flesh that Paul had talked about in in verse 2 and following, that he's chosen to forget about, to lay aside, to leave behind, as to no longer have a passion for, as to no longer rely upon, as to no longer boast in. You're beginning to get a sense that going through the the, the sort of self-scrutiny here, it all gets to, it would be all right because of the day of Christ. That is, of course, Paul's saying, for something truly messianic. And so here's the climactic tension of this whole book right here in this passage. This is really it. And here's how he says it. For one thing I do. Now, that's messianic. You know, when you, when you can come to this place and say, look, you know, just whatever else is good and important, but one thing, this one thing I do, He says it this way, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now what is he talking about, this upward call of Christ Jesus? He describes it in verse 11, and he embellishes it in verse 28. In verse 11, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, that by any means possible, any means again, Paul? 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, we're going to have to come back to that phrase because that is more than an event for Paul, as you'll see. That's a whole different reality that he's talking about. And then he goes on to explain it. For our true citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to make it like a glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so very quickly, three things I want us to look at in that passage. Number one, what is Paul talking about when he says pressing on? What kind of life is Paul talking about? Two, we need to talk about the prize. What is the prize? I mean, what is it exactly? This ultimate reward, this ultimate goal. What is his ultimate passion is related to what his dreams and hopes are all about? And then finally, what then will it require in order to press on after it? So first of all, pressing on verse time, what kind of life was Paul talking about? It's clear that this is sort of the the key exhortation of this passage because two times this word shows up, verse 12 and verse 14. Verse 12, listen to it. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. What's he talking about? 314, I press on towards the goal of the prize, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. This word, press on, it's, it's, it's not endure. It's not this picture of a roly-poly, you know, rolling himself up just in, a, in the world with a hill and a handbasket kind of situation and just kind of doing this and crouching over in a corner. So, okay, I'm just going to endure this. I'm just going to persevere in the sense of enduring it. This word could be nothing further from that word, another word like that. And there are other words like that in the Greek. No, this word... It has the emotion of hastiness to it. Um, it's, it's this intensity of effort in order to catch up with something, to move quickly, energetically towards an objective or a goal. In other words, you could have just as well translated it, I will run after it with all my might, or I will chase it, or I will pursue it. This is the way it sounds in other uses throughout the, the, the uh, English Bible. It's translated this way. For instance, Luke 17, do not go and chase after them. That word chase is this word. Or in another passage, we hear it used this way. He pursued the woman with great energy. That is one word. He pursued with great energy is how they translate this word. And so... Listen to the way those verses I read a minute ago. Now, I'm going to translate them for you in this way. Not that I've already obtained this. What's this? The prize. We'll get to that in a minute. Or I'm already perfect or fully experiencing it. But I hasten energetically to pursue to make it my own. He is going after it. Or 3.14, I intensely run after the goal for the prize. Now, some of you are athletes, and you know what the difference is. There's three-fourths running, and there's just putting it all on the field. And that's what he's saying. I'm, I'm, lay, I'm leaving it on the field. I'm going after it totally. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, so that's this word to, to press on, to intensely go after this goal. So that raises the second question, right? What's the prize? What is it that he's so intensely pursuing as his passion? Well, again, notice the passage that we're looking at, verse 14. Towards, he says, the goal for the prize. And then it's, it's qualified here, or explained as, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, this upward call of God, clearly what he's talking about is something that is upward, which means not just he lives in the clouds, this flighty kind of a guy. No. What he's meaning is that there's this call that's not of this world. There's a transcendence to this call, a call that, that, that trumps every call that's of this world, like family, as important as that is, like nation state. Politics, as important as that is. Like, and you could go, my work, the vocation of economics or whatever. 
arts, any of those things, beautiful, great, passions. But this is something that's just of an altogether different kind of passion. It's messianic, truly. As in there's only one. And so this upward call of God, but there again, what is he talking about, the upward call of God? Well, remember the context that I've already noted for you. How this has already been somewhat prepared for you in this idea of, of, um, of the day of Christ, or the day of Jesus. It's a race metaphor. And this is the way this word is used, as a race, as a pursuing something. And he's pursuing the, the prize, the reward that's at the end of this race, with a determination to win. But again, we haven't quite gotten to the answer. In fact, if you're looking at it carefully, like is often the case in the Greek, there is no direct object stated here. It begs the question of the direct object. And that's actually pretty common. Because in the Greek, uh, you often won't have a direct object because it'll be already given to you in the previous statement. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. But before I get to that, let me show you what he was talking about here. It's going to give you a clue. Now, I'm going to have to get you in the weeds just a little bit, okay? Bear with me. This is going to be good. He talks about, in verse 5, how let those of us who are mature, is the way your English translates it, think this way about life. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you as well. In other words, if you think any other passion is the kind of passion this is, you've you got to think twice. But this word mature, I think, is a kind of interesting translation because the word now, I'm going to get real heavy on you a little bit, but it's, it's what we call an eschatological word. What I mean by that is it's, you might have heard the word telos, which is at the end. Well, this is a word that Paul only uses once. It's, not, it's, it's a derivative of telos. But it's this word that, that occurs nowhere else. So he's really trying to make a point here. But he uses the word telos with great frequency, actually. But here's what you've got to understand. What he's saying with this word is that, that this upward call has to do with a prize that is now already given, but is incompletely given, if you will. And therefore, there's this, there's this prize that, that we are all still, want, ha, we have, but we all still are running in order to attain its fullness. It's this idea of perfection, but that's not a good translation. Probably a better translation has something to do with this. At the end, there's a new reality. There's a new end. It's an end to this race. A race that you've already been given, but it's, there's an end to it. And I race with great passion for that end. And that's going to beg the question of that direct object. What is the end? And here's how he's going to say it. Weedy again. Just hang in there with me. Here's a weed. He uses this familiar pattern of rhetoric where he, where A says something in the negative, B says it in the positive. And what's really startling is that both of those sentences that I read earlier, verse, verse what is it, 12 and 14, he repeats the same pattern. A, B, A, B. I'll show you the relevance of that. A. I have not lambano it, or obtained it, grabbed it, been given it yet. I have not been given it yet. Negative. B, but I press on, I pursue intensely, he says, that I may kata lambano. That is, take hold of it finally, cataclysmically, if you will, in victory. And then he repeats it again in verse 14 in a different way. I do not reckon to have reached it. Now there's that word again, katalambano, what is going to be the end game. But I press on towards the goal of receiving it. These words, to take hold of something, to obtain it, to receive it, to finish, to accomplish they all convey this idea of a great cataclysmic prize at the end of history, the day of the Lord. 
And so what is he talking about? Well, again, in verse 11, he calls it the resurrection from the dead. But you can't think of that word as standing isolated, like it's a vent. He's talking about this event which brings about a whole new reality of life itself. Listen to the way he says it. He says, this passion, this pressing on, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his suffering now, becoming like him in his death, in order that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Again, this idea, this ultimate spiritual redemption of our body when all things will be freely given to us, And then he further explains what he means by this new reality of the resurrection from the dead. In verse 20, but our citizenship, he says, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, to be the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. What is the prize? Listen carefully. It's family. It's, no, it's the family dream, but it's not the family. Or it's the American dream, but it's not America. You see what he's doing? It's my work, the the thing that you just, whether it's beauty and the arts, whether it's amazing, incredible things in science. But it's not the job of science. It's not the science job, if you will. You see? That's what he's getting at. It's, I'm trying to get you in touch with this idea, this reality that we all have in our hearts. I mean, I want, I mean, I just have a passion for family, don't you? For your, your marriage or your relationships or wanting to have a family. And, oh, I want it to work so much. I had dreams about this intimacy and this community. and But it never, ever approximates what Paul's talking about here. I have this vision. I love our homeland. I'm an American. I know you love your homeland, wherever you're from. It's home. And, and when you think about homeland, when you think about America or China or wherever you're from, you love it. It's a dream, though. It's bigger than the place. What Paul is talking about here is this reality that is the dream of every human being alive today. Where there's this flourishing. There's these trees of life flourishing along streams of water flowing. You know, just any image you can think about. And he's saying, that's the prize. It's not of this world, though. Did you hear what he said? It's a power that's that's not of this world power. It can't happen through just mere political activism. It can't happen through a thousand counseling sessions in marriage. It can't happen through all the education, the best education in the world. It's something that's real. And it all has to do with the day of the Lord. This is a constant theme for Paul. It's a theme that we, especially in our kind of achiever world, just can't quite understand. He says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if our earthly house, and then he goes, you know it's a tent, don't you? (laughs) You know, I'm thinking house here, right? And he goes, no, I'm talking tent. For we know that our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. It won't last. For we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. See what he's talking about, that upper call of God? He is pushing something that can't be made with hands. That is to say, not with human wisdom, not with human might and power and ingenuity. He calls it a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
For we who are in this tent, we groan, we want it so badly. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but because we want to be further clothed, he says in 2 Corinthians. I'm reading out of 2 Corinthians 5 if you want to go to it later. This mortality, we, we, we have a dream that mortality is swallowed up in life, he says. And we are confident, yes, we are well pleased, rather to be absent from the body in order to be present with the Lord. He's talking about a new society that we all crave, a kingdom of peace and prosperity of which we can't ever seem to get in our life. I mean, you have to be a little bit of a historian, but, you know, we think today, we hear this language of American dream, and, you know, people voting for making America great again, if, that, if America was great for them then, but there are a whole other group of people who see America great again as going back to oppression, and understandably so. But what we're both wanting is something bigger, honestly, than America. That's the point that Paul is making. He's talking about resurrection, not social political reform. As much as that's an important thing, it's a provisional thing. These things are important, but only the kingdom of God. The day of the Lord. And so I want to ask you something. And I need you to really think about this. I've got to get out of the sun or I can't see. Is that all right? still can't see. What are you doing with that thing? I don't know where I'm going. All right, I'm going to try here. It's worse. Okay. Um, I want to ask you this, really, because this is really important. Do you really, no, I mean really, believe that there's going to be a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return? And on that day, this great and cataclysmic day for those who have are, are good with Jesus, it will be a day of such climactic and radical transformation that the whole earth will be transformed into a heaven. Do you believe that? I mean, this personal, this visible coming of Jesus Christ bodily. Listen to Acts. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And what happened on that amazing and mystical day is a bodily ascension. And it's going to be a bodily ascension. Back. Do you believe in this day that will come with such cataclysmic power? Second Peter 3 describes it, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away and the loud noise and the elements will be dissolved with fire and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Do you believe in a day where in a moment... Everything we've worked for for millennia upon millennia, everything Rome was as a dream, everything that Babylon was as a dream, everything that Israel was for a dream, everything that America was for a dream, everything that Marxist, you know, U.S. Marxism is in a dream, and it's a beautiful dream if you've ever read Marx. Everything that is a dream that's been assigned to nation-state building or assigned to a family or assigned to, and you can go on, to a job. These things will happen. Bam! Powerful. Do you believe that? It's a glorious coming. Matthew 24, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who believed, because our testimony to you was true. Paul will say in Corinthians that if this isn't true, and the bodily resurrection isn't true, and the Christ resurrection is true, everything he's done is in vain. Do we have that mindset? I think we are so caught up in, in our earth 
bound messianism. So our whole object is to try to transform that which ultimately can't be transformed except by the supernatural power of God and his personal return. Everywhere in Scripture. You can't believe it. If you have not noticed this, just try reading your New Testament. In fact, try reading the Old Testament. You heard our passage, didn't you? You know, I press on, what, to know the Lord? And then it goes on to describe the Lord's coming in glory, establishing new rivers and streams of life, like rain on a desert. Everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it is one of the most prominent, clearly articulated dreams. It is the dream of the promised land. And somehow we don't talk about it. Somehow we're just not willing really to think about that. Well, Paul, that's messianism. That's messianic. And so what would that mean for Christians? Well, Christ will say it this way in chapter 24 of Matthew all the way through 25, but the gist of it is stay awake. Stay awake, for you do not know what day the Lord is coming. And then he talks about, but when that day happens, everything changes. If this stuff feels a little bit weird and uncomfortable to you, it might show you just how secular we have become. That is, not willing to think about the reality, do I really believe in a God who is supernatural, real, and personal? And he's coming. It'll change everything. So where is this going? Well, that goes then to third. What would that do? If you really believe this, that the prize is coming in the return of Christ, the day of Christ, and it's a new society, it's a new reality that's coming, and to participate in that new reality is to Basically, be restored to God through faith in Jesus Christ. If everything you're looking for and all of your passions are misplaced, if they're not ultimately placed in Jesus Christ in this great day, then what would your passion be? How would you live your life? Well, here's what he's going to say. Three things. What is required of us in order to press on then, if that's true, if we really have bought into this, hope I spent enough time on it. Then verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And this is where he then goes on to describe how I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of worth of knowing Christ. I leave all things behind for the sake of... You see what he's saying? Number one is you're going to have to let some things go. You're going to have to let go of any passion that you have that trumps your passion for Christ. You have to let it go. Your job is just not that important. Your degree is just not that important. America is not just that important. Family is not just that important. Yeah, I know, I'm sounding radical here. They're all important. <laughs> they all have a purpose and callingness to it. Don't misunderstand me here. We're resident aliens, so we do resident here, and we partake in these things as they, as they are means of grace, even, in our world to restrain evil and to bring order. But everything about those, if you read the Scripture, is about keeping the world fertile so that our that people can be restored to God through Jesus Christ. Everything in that whole thing you do sustains a world free, that where the curse has been restrained to the degree that there's still the opportunity to be restored to Jesus Christ. In order that, you might reach the prize, which is the prize of everything we want and dream of. The tribe, the, the prize of heaven itself. And so, think about what your credentials are or your confidences. 
your worldly power, social prestige, financial privileges, whatever these things are, these are things that we need to let go of in a messianic way. So number one, we're going to have to let go of some things. But number two, he goes on to say, hold fast. Forgetting what lies behind, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to forget about that stuff as stuff that I'm going to import into it all of my messianic passion and dreams. Leaving all that behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. Hold true to what you have attained. Now, what is he talking about, what you have attained? He explains it. He goes into the sound how he has already attained. He says, I have to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith alone. What is he saying? Let go of all that other passion that you think is going to save you and enter you into your dream. Hold fast to what will, which is the gospel. The gospel of grace through faith, in order that you might be restored to God through Jesus Christ. And so here's what Paul's going to say to the pastor. He's going to say to the pastor, Pastor, for the sake of this upward call of God, are you willing to forego, and I'm going to get personal here, your right as an Anglo-white man in order for me to listen, to empathize, to care for, to love whatever the dream is for your neighbor who's a African-American man? Can you for a moment set aside your identity as he did a Jew, a Jew of Jews? the most prestigious and esteemed family of origin you could have had, blue blood, if there was ever blue blood in the first century, he's got it. Are you willing to let that stuff aside? Put it aside, your blue blood. And are you willing to become a Greek? To a Greek? That's what Paul would say. For the prize? Since this is the most, for, for this, I'll do it. But that's my right to be a white person. And I have rights, too. It's my right to be a... And you can just fill it in, whatever person you are. Gender, race, nationality, whatever. It's my right. Well, it is your right. But for the sake of the prize, if I really believe that, that all of my neighbors and my family members, etc., that every one of them and every dream that they have and they've invested in other things, could I possibly hear their dreams, suffer, get into their world, suffer where they suffer their dreams not coming true and in a way that I could help them be restored to Christ? Could I forego my right to be politically relevant as to speak all to all parties concerning a kingdom not of this world? Could I forgo my right to be a citizen of America, to engage common grace aspects that are good, etc.? But can I forgo my right in order to be a refugee to a refugee? Could I be a middle America man to a middle America man? Can I be a Northeast Corridor, uh, you know, elite Ivy League person? See, the fact of the matter is, and this is something that's relevant, I think, to our situation politically, you know, there is, I mean, there was an interesting thing that happened eight years ago when President Obama became president. I, I preached the same sermon almost. I didn't, this text wasn't there, but John was probably there. I had the same kind of message. I had people, friends on my Facebook that were just going ballistic. The world is coming to an end. The Antichrist has come Blah, 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 blah. I mean, it was horrible. And, you know, I remember it previous elections. Now, and then you had people over here that were ecstatic, almost in a messianic tone. Finally, the ceiling has been broken, etc., etc., etc. And see, Paul is transcending all this. He's saying there's a lot of messianism, negatively expressed, positively, but there's a lot of messianism going on around here. 
But am I willing to listen, to empathize? I mean, I was, you know, there's a lot of things that concern people right now about what's happening politically in our country. There were then too, by the way. I'll never forget, I was sitting there listening to this. Of course, I live here, and I'm part of this community. And um, there was a there was an interview of a person, a man, in, um, I can't remember where, I think it was Indiana or Ohio, one of the two. And this is big old strong, burly guy, bigger than I am, just, just big neck, you know, just brawny guy, the kind of guy that could just beat my, you know what. <laughs> and he's being interviewed. And he, he's asked, why did you vote for Donald Trump? And he says, and he starts to describe his small town. You've probably heard it. But he's, he's describing his small town. And he says, you know, I grew up in this town. My father grew up in this town. Our parents, it was just, just teeming with kids, playing in the streets, sidewalks. Everyone worked at, the, at that, at that uh, you know, manufacturing place over here. Oh, everybody worked over there in the company. The, the, you know, the company supported all this stuff in our lives, baseball teams and this and Fourth of July parades. And he says, it was just a beautiful life that I grew up in and I, grew, and I went into the night. I did everything right, I thought. I did all that. And then one day they pick up and they left. And, and now it's a ghost town. And he just started crying. He just literally started crying uncontrollably like a baby in front of this, this camera, this big old man. Just cried. My whole world, everything I've dreamed of is gone. No one wants to stay here anymore. And see, Paul's saying, you know, I want to reach that guy. So, you know, I have a right to post all these things about against the guy he voted for. For whatever reason, he put his messianic dreams, let's say, on Donald Trump. And Paul's saying, do I realize that when I attack Trump, I'm attacking his dreams. I'm saying, he doesn't matter. So I will forego the right to attack Donald Trump, my political right of free speech. I'll forego that, Paul says. Because I want to reach this man. I want to hear him. I want to empathize. I want to say to his face, that sucks. And I understand your hurt, your pain in your life. And then I want to do the same thing as I meet over here a man who, who is crying for, who's, who's just distraught about Trump now. Not elated that Trump has is, is gotten, this, this guy voted for Trump, right? For the guy who doesn't vote for Trump. And he's saying, this is horrifying. This is scary as hell. Oh my God, we're going back to persecution. We're going back to oppression. We're being demeaned. We're being this. Oh my God, the fear that this man is feeling. And I want to empathize with that. I want to go to this guy, says Paul. I want to help him relocate these messianic dreams to Jesus Christ. How am I going to do that? Well, I'm not going to boast Trump to him either, you see. Do y'all get what I'm saying here? I'm just kind of doing this in my head. But it's almost impossible, unless you've been reading this book really closely, to see how closely this ties to what we're dealing with here. He's saying, oh, everything is as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of this prize. And I want this prize for everyone. And so I'm going to change the way I live. I'm going to change the way I say things. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to preach. And you've heard him say this before, right? If you know the Bible. I'm going to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's going to be my focus here. And whatever I do in this world, I'm going to do it as never to jeopardize my proclaiming Christ to you and to you and to you and to you. I'm going to press on. I'm going to go after that prize. I'm going to keep my eye on the ball. And the ball is the kingdom of God that comes in Christ Jesus on the day he returns. And I want every one of you in this room, Paul would say, to be prepared for that. And so I'm not going to lose your confidence on anything else. I'm not going to jeopardize our relationship on anything else. 
I'm telling you, I support you and your dream. And I want you to find that dream in Christ. You see, that's the idea. The messianic fervor that is so often demonstrated in our partisan-oriented political seasons, along with the corresponding elation or despair by consequence of the results or any other fervor assigned to any other thing. I'm just picking on that because that's relevant to us right now today. These things, these dreams are good. They're innate in us. I believe it. We've been made for heaven on earth. But it's messianic. And there's only one Messiah, Jesus Christ. Some of you walked today in a in a march, and I think that's great. Let me show you how this looks. What if you said to me, Pastor, we should participate as a church. You should, why don't we, why don't we cancel something and let's go do it together and endure it? Now, many of you did it, and I really applaud that you did it. But could I do that? Because here's, here's where it gets complicated. On the one hand, let me just make it clear. This church, and I think all churches, should be pro-refugee. Our Lord was a refugee. You do realize that. He was oppressed. We are all Christians, pro-refugee. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care how you got over here. Illegally or not, you're welcome in this church. We open it up. We have tons of scripture. Extend hospitality to strangers. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. There is no such thing as a stranger and alien to the church. Jesus warns us. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. I don't know about you, but I just can't read my Bible and not be pro-refugee. Right? And all of these passages are talking to the church here. And how the church should respond to all these sorts of things. And, I, and there's many other things that we're pro. You know, I'm, I'm pro, not race, what's the opposite of racism? <laughs> Equality. I'm, you know, there are things, so, so what I'm saying is not that the church can't be political. We're apolitical. It's not non-political or political. We're just apolitical. If the scripture speaks it, we can speak it. But I have to be careful that it's scripture speaking. By good and necessary inferences, I read the scripture and it's not just our inference from Scripture without good and necessary reason. So let me explain. This, this uh, we thought about. It was even contemplated. Why don't we cancel Sunday school today? And why don't we go and, and get some things and, and participate in, the, in this march as a, as a church, kind of, in an indirect way? You know? I mean, I wouldn't have run, that's for sure, but something. And then we started realizing, and we go to the website, the IRS website. Now, by the way, the church is actually communicating with IRS through uh, Bridges of Hope, and we're looking at participating with Bridges of Hope in, in a kind of program that would welcome and pr- provide, you know, homes or whatever uh, to refugees or to sponsor refugees. So that might happen. But you go to the website of IRS, and it's kind of sad this way because you know, this has been going on for 10 years. I don't know if you knew this, this march. And, you know, if it's this is a march to make, you know, to help the awareness of the reality that refugees are here in our country and they need to be cared for and loved, etc. If that's the purpose of the march, we'd say, okay. But unfortunately, what is tagged to it is a strong position on this or that immigration policy or this or that view of sanctuary cities. Now, once you go there, that's where the church has to say, hold it. I know I'm sitting in a congregation that's probably equally divided on whether we shouldn't have, whether we should have sanctuary cities or whether we should have created safe zones outside of Aleppo and things like that. And can the Bible tell me which is the proper way to take care of refugees? It can tell me to love refugees, but it can't divide the, or these whole issues of immigration policy and all the things. And so you see where I'm going. I know I'm kind of going on here, but here's what I'm asking you to think about by way of illustration. If you understand what Paul is saying, and there is no other Messiah save Jesus Christ, and there is nothing 
that can bring in the new reality, the dreams, the hopes, the aspirations, except Jesus Christ, then why would you lose the opportunity to talk to the right or the left for anything other than Jesus Christ? You see his logic? And so we decided not to do that, not to cancel Sunday school. We said we're going to go on like or we're going to we're going to totally affirm and support. It's the right and the privilege and even the responsibility for every Christian, according to their own sense of conviction, as to what policies are more or less uh, appropriate to loving people, etc., to activ- to be activating on those things. And so we support people to do that and encourage you to do it according to your convictions. But as a church, we preach nothing save Christ. And that's code word for only what Christ has preached will we preach. He preaches love refugees, we preach it. He doesn't preach immigration policy A versus B, so we don't preach it. And we're not going to lose your trust and confidence because we don't. Now, I'm trying to present this for the church. You know, it's sad um, to me, and I'm going to read from a guy that, that, that uh, a guy named Kevin DeYoung. And I'm now talking to pastors, since we, this is what this was about, partly. Quote, pastors should be careful not to get swept up in the daily whirlwind of, of American or British or Canadian or whatever politics. And, he, and then he goes and makes a little thesis statement here. And I think this is an example of what I think Paul would say in this passage. First, he says, I'm concerned when I see that pastors' online presence uh, sometimes filled with commentary on whatever political item is dominating the 24-hour news cycle. And he says, how does a pastor have time to keep up with all the latest twists and turns of the Trump administration, let alone to provide running commentary. You know what he's asking? I mean, if our job is to say nothing save Christ, don't I have enough work to do? Because you know what you have to do to do this, don't you? You can't, you can't take hearsay. Our Bible calls that a sin. Our Bible says in Proverbs that to hear a story from one side and then to assume that that's the truth is a sin. Our whole political process is founded on the predicated on the idea of, of you can that, that there's two sides to every story. You got to hear both sides. Really, the only way I can comment on the internet, and even then would be if I'm willing to go and get the original manuscript and listen to both sides debate it. And if it's by good and necessary inference from Scripture that there's only one side that could possibly be true, to comment on it as a pastor. So I want to warn you. I know this is a big sermon, but I want to warn you. It's a scary thing to see pastors pontificating about things they don't know much about. I'm concerned, he says, when I see pastors alienating members of their congregation and their neighbors and their world over political matters that require prudent consideration. And he goes on to say how he will speak where Scripture speaks on issues like marriage and abortion, etc., etc., racism. But then he goes on to say, we should be experts in the Bible and in the care of souls. And after that, some pastors may be particularly thoughtful and well-read, but let's be slow to speak in areas we know little about. Well, you get the gist, don't you? That's to pastors. But to Christians... If you really buy into what Paul is saying here, that the prize is to participate in leading the world to heaven, then what they're going to say by application is something like this. Before you attack Trump on the social media and call him a name, remember the man who voted for him, probably not for Trump's sake, but they were voting their dream. And they were voting their pain. And do you really want to lose that man as an opportunity to bring the gospel to him? Or for those of you who are Trump fans, if there are any here, and you're just boasting Trump in your face to those who are deeply scared, deeply troubled, and traumatized, do you really want to lose those people? And the opportunity you have, lovingly and gently, to listen to their worries and their fears, to sympathize with it, to empathize with it, and to encourage them 
and where that dream and where those fears can be alleviated. You see, that's the idea. It's an upward call. Paul said it elsewhere in Galatians, set your mind on things above. Don't get caught in the gangness of this this stuff. But mostly I'm going to end with this. We are about to come to a table. And really what Paul is trying to say is keep your eye on the ball. Remember me. This is what I've done for you. This is how you're right with God. By receiving me and everything I've done for you to restore to God. And the table's going to end. Remember? You know, he's going to say, this is my body, this is my blood, da 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 do this remembers me. And as much as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. You remember what he says? Until he comes again. It sets everything in our life in a frame that says this. There's only one Messiah. And there's only one new heaven and new earth. And I will now focus everything in my life to that as the most important thing in my life. I hope you'll do that. Bless.